Welcome to Quick Brain, bite-sized brain hacks for busy people who want to learn faster and achieve more. I'm your coach, Jim Quick. Free your mind. Let's imagine if we could access 100% of our brain's capacity. I wasn't high, wasn't wired, just clear. I knew what I needed to do and how to do it. I know Kung Fu. Show me. Welcome back to the Quick Brain Podcast. I am your host and your brain coach, Jim Quick. I want to thank you for tuning in to this uh, very special episode. Make sure you subscribe on YouTube uh, to our 1.3 million uh, subscribers there to get the latest and the greatest. We encourage people to watch our content there because you get to see us on video. and, And we also put the extended version on if you're listening to audio, we keep it to 20 minutes, but let's get started. I want to thank you, everyone, also for supporting our latest book, Limitless Expanded. It means the world to us. We're on a mission to build better, brighter brains. In the spirit of that, we're going to talk about the power of your mind today. And the question we have for you today, everybody, is how does embracing mind-body unity open up new possibilities to be able to manage and enhance our health And we have a world-renowned expert here. I'm a big fan, kind of geeking out. I quote Dr. Langer's work uh, consistently almost every single month. And uh, so let me introduce you to Dr. Ellen Langer. She is a best-selling author, professor of psychology, department at Harvard University. Many people refer to her as the mother of mindfulness. If I was to read her entire CV, it would take the entire 20 minutes. And her latest book that we're going to talk about today is The Mindful body, thinking our way to chronic health. Dr. Langer, thank you for being on our show. Thank you for having me, Jim. Why don't we start by defining to our listeners, what is your understanding of mindful or mindfulness? I'm glad you asked me because when people hear the word mindfulness, they tend to think of meditation. (laughs) And meditation, while fine, is very different from what we're doing. Meditation is a practice that you engage in, hopefully to result in post-meditative mindfulness. Mindfulness, as we study it, is more immediate. It's a way of being. It's not a practice. So most people are oblivious to the fact that they're not there most of the time. Now, you don't know you're not there because you're not there to know. 40 years of research has said most of us are mindless almost all the time. Being mindful couldn't be easier. It's a simple process of noticing new things about the things you think you know. Then you say, wow, I guess I didn't know it as well as I thought, and your mind naturally goes to it. Um, Another way of becoming mindful is recognizing the importance of uncertainty. None of us know. Everything is always changing. Everything looks different from different perspectives. And when we truly understand that, everything becomes new, in which case we just naturally show up. The way we're taught in schools uh, by our parents, oftentimes even the media, teaches us absolutes. And when you think you know something absolutely, then there's no reason to pay any attention to it. So one of my favorites was I think that the thing people are most sure of is how much is one plus one. Okay, so how much is one plus one, Jim? We got two. Two, okay. Two. 
That's very bright of you. Okay. But it turns out one plus one isn't <laughs> always two. If you add one watt of chewing gum plus mm. one watt of chewing gum, one plus one is one. You add one pile of laundry plus one pile of laundry, one plus one is one. One cloud plus one cloud. Mm. One plus. So in the real world, it doesn't equal two as often as it does. Now that I've told you that, imagine, this is very unlikely, but right after we finish, somebody says to you, hey, Jim, how much is one in one? You're no longer just going to blurt out two. You're going to pay some attention to the context, and then you'll probably answer, it could be two. And that's the world that we live in, the world where everything can be understood in multiple ways, things are always changing, and when we recognize that we don't know, we sit up and pay attention, and we don't have to be afraid of not knowing because nobody knows. Right? And that also gives you great power when you're talking to one of these people who think they know. Anyway, so what we've done is over 45 years of research, making people more mindful and is uh, actively noticing new things. And the effects are enormous that um, it results in longevity and increase in health. Our relationships are better. People see us as charismatic. Our memory is better. Everything is better, actually. And uh, the fun thing is that it's so easy. So that I hope that your listeners, once they hear this, they realize they should be mindful. If you're going to do it, show up for it. I really love that. Sometimes we don't evaluate our assumptions and our attitudes about things. You mentioned our health. We tend to live our lives sometimes as, as we grow older or we have more life experience. I'm in my 50s through ailments, right? Yeah. You mentioned yeah. in the book, stiff knees or frayed nerves, diminishing eyesight, and we have a belief system that, that we're mindful of uh, that if you were to ask, it's just like it's going to go in one direction. Usually it's a decline for, exactly, for the worst. Exactly. And so then what happens is it often becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, that uh, if you believe when you get old, you fall apart. When you get older and you start to fall apart, you say, well, what do you expect? And you don't do anything to make yourself better. And the experiments that we've done, most of which are all of them actually are reported in the mindful body, show that the amount of control we have over our health and well-being just so far exceeds anything that most people assume. It's very exciting. You know, that uh, one of the things that we talk about in the book, a large amount actually, is um, mind-body unity. Mm -hmm. And most people uh, grow, grew up in a time we would talk about mind and body. And if you have a mind and a body, the question is, how do you get from this fuzzy thing called the mind, a thought, to the body? And I say, let's put them back together. And if we make the mind and body one thing, so it's not connected, it's one thing, then wherever you put the mind, you're necessarily putting the body. And so we do lots and lots of studies where we put the mind in unusual places, take the measurements from the body, and get support um, from all of them for the idea of mind-body unity. The first study we did on mind-body unity is called the counterclockwise study, where what we did was we retrofitted a retreat to 20 years earlier, and we had elderly men live there as if they were their younger selves. Right, So they would be discussing past events as if they were just unfolding, uh, watching movies from the past as if this was the first time they saw them, and, and so on. And the results were kind of incredible that in just one week, without any medical intervention, their vision improved, 
their hearing improved, their memory, their strength, and they looked noticeably younger. And people misunderstand some of the things about that study because I'm not saying you're actually 20 years younger. What the study says is that you can do the things you were able to do 20 years ago if you just let yourself expect that you can do them. So, you know, we have so many of these studies reported in the book, but one of the most fun ones, I think, is a very recent one on wound healing. So we inflict a wound, not a big wound, because it would be the review committee would let me do it, and I don't want to hurt people, but it's a wound nonetheless. And we have people in front of a clock. Okay, so for a third of the people who have this wound, the clock is going twice as fast as real time. It's rigged. For a third of the people, the clock is going half as fast as real time. And for a third of the people, it's real time. And the question we're asking is, does that wound heal based on real time, which is what everybody would assume, or based on clock or perceived time? And the answer is perceived time. Okay. People in a sleep lab wake up and they see by looking at a clock, I'm big on clocks, that's also been rigged, that they slept two hours more than they slept or two hours fewer, or the amount that they actually slept. Biological and cognitive processes seem to follow perceived amount of sleep. It's so interesting how our thoughts and our perspectives have the potential to profoundly shape our our well-being. Enormously so. But we have another study that um, we're doing right now where people are actually told how long it would take them to heal. You go to the doctor with almost anything, you know, you break your leg, you're going to ask how long will it take me to heal? And they tend to give the average or the far end you know, of how long it's going to take. It might take you... And that, that, that's the prognosis. The, the, right. so you, someone's diagnosed with a broken leg, but the prognosis is setting the expectation for, right. for how so, what the experience is going to be like in the healing process and how long it's going to take. What we do is now we give people the quickest healing time. And we say some people heal as quickly as... All right. And now we're going to see if your cataract surgery or your broken legs or, you know, whatever actually will heal a lot faster. And all of the mind body unity work suggests that it it should. It will. But we won't know yet. You'll have to have me back on the show uh, next year. I look forward to that. In terms of bringing this into practical application, how can people take this idea of mindfulness and put it into practice. Let's say somebody feels like they're not getting a good night's sleep and they're always looking at their metrics on their devices or they're they're, they're losing their eyesight. Yeah. These devices are great, but they also cause a lot of trouble. And we're given information like you should sleep eight hours a night. Well, science, whether it's medical science, any science only gives us probabilities. It can't give us absolutes. So it would be most of the time, or for many of us, eight hours is a good amount of sleep. But because people mindlessly say, I need eight hours, that if they find they've gotten seven hours, um, they set themselves up for problems. And you know, the example I think of, uh, to me, speaks volumes. You know, Let's say you just ran a marathon. And what I did was I stayed home watching television, eating candy all day. So I'm on the couch all day long, you're out running. It seems inconceivable to me that we should need the same amount of sleep. Right. And yet that's the way people organize themselves. Um, You were talking about vision. This is one of my favorites because, again, with these old men, we got an improvement in vision. 
that right now you go to the doctor, you read that Snelling eye chart. So, and I'm bizarre, I know it. You know, so for me, all I see, these letters are getting progressively smaller, that there's an expectation that soon I'm not going to be able to see. So we did a study to change the expectation. So the letters, instead of getting smaller, get larger, suggesting soon you will be able to see, and people can see what they couldn't see before. But the other thing about vision that I find so interesting is that you're looking at these letters that make no sense in a context that's stressful to start, and then the doctor gives you a number that says you need glasses, as if the way you saw at that moment was the way you always see. I don't know about you, Jim, but if I'm hungry, I can see that restaurant sign very far away. (laughs) People see colors uh, differently from black and white, things that are moving, things that are familiar. And so one of the things I um, suggest to people is that unless your vision is so bad that you're going to cause yourself great injury, you know, uh, take your glasses off because you're training yourself not to be able to see. Almost as if, you know, if you took a laxative every day, it would be hard if you stopped taking it to, you know, to naturally go to the bathroom. That so you train your eyes to be dependent on the glasses. If you didn't do that and you go through the day and you see when you have trouble seeing and when you don't. And, you know, you might find out that you know, for me, for example, um, I'm a morning person. So around three or four o'clock, if that's when I went to the doctor for the eye test, my eyes would be worse. But the alternative to glasses might be to rest, you know, to, to have an energy bar. Now, those energy bars I find so funny. When I was your age, we used to call them candy bars. You know, you're not supposed <laughs> to have a candy bar, but an energy bar sounds fine. So in, in um the mindful body, you suggest that there may be not just one way of how we can improve, uh, let's say, chronic stress or, or chronic illness. How does that tie in with what people have heard as the placebo effect? Do you have too much to read, but too little time? Are your shelves full of books that you haven't read yet and become shelf help, not self-help? And that's why I created the Quick Reading Course. 15 minutes a day, 21 days will absolutely transform your life. Just go to quickbrain.com forward slash reading. Use the code podcast15 and you'll get instant access. Yeah, that's a very good question. Because first of all, the placebo effect is the the best and the earliest evidence of mind-body unity, right? Mm -hmm. You take a pill that's a nothing pill, right? It's a sugar pill. Uh, If it's a placebo, by definition, it doesn't have any active ingredient. You take it and you get better. Well, if it's not the pill that's making you better, what's making you better? You're, You're doing it for yourself, And that's what all of my work has been aimed at, um, has been so important to me, to get people to exercise this control that they actually have over their own bodies. Now, when you have a chronic illness, most people believe the symptoms are going to stay the same or get worse, but nothing moves in only one direction. Sometimes it's a little better, sometimes it's a little worse. And we hold it still always with our minds, ignoring what's actually going on. So now what we do is we call people periodically. So Jim, how is it now? Are you in more or less pain than before and why? Well, three things happen with this. The first, you see, gee, I'm not in as much pain as I thought I was all the time. Second, 
by asking why, why now is it a little better or a little worse, you get, you engage in a mindful search that itself is good for your health, independent of anything else. And third, I believe if you are looking for a solution, you're more likely to find one. And the problem is people confuse chronic injuries, chronic diseases with them being uncontrollable. All it means is that the medical world hasn't come up with an answer. You can always make the rest of your body stronger, which I can't imagine wouldn't help us no matter what disease we have. Even with stress, people who are stressed think they're stressed all the time. No one is anything all the time, right? So um, what happens is you're stressed, then you have a period of time where you're not stressed, so you're not thinking about the stress, and then you're stressed again, and that intervening non-stress period somehow doesn't come to your awareness. So it, clearly you change your attitudes or assumptions about something. It could impact what our community is interested in, which is uh, brain function, mental well-being, brain function like focus, memory, mental well-being, yeah. reduced stress, some peace of, of mind. And so you can't give yourself a placebo then what would your advice be to our listeners of where to start? Let, let's say I have a, a torn rotator cuff, which I do, which I got from sparring. And it's, it's, it's pretty chronic. I don't feel the pain all the time. You could have somebody, you know, a friend, a spouse, whatever, calling you, you know, periodically or asking you, so how is it right now, Jim? Or do it yourself. Mm -hmm. You just set the clock on your phone to ring and then you ask yourself, how is the pain now? Is it more or less than before? And why? And when you ask, is it, you know, you'll know immediately whether it's more or less. And then you start figuring out, well, what did I do differently, you know, in this last hour than I might have done before? And you guess and you come closer and closer. And by thinking about all the different things that could be the reason, your mind is active, the neurons are firing. And that is, you know, we have 45 years of research is literally and figuratively enlivening. Hmm. So what happens is it's good for you, even if you can't figure out why your rotator cuff, you know, um, it hurts less in the morning. But people seem to be able to come up with something. And I, it's interesting because I hadn't thought about this until you asked me this question right now, Jim, that even if they don't have the quote right answer, if you said, you know, right now your rotator cuff is fine because you had an energy bar, masquerading, a candy bar masquerading as an energy bar. Um, so then because you thought you figured it out, you'd be less stressed. And it turns out that I think stress is the uh, major culprit across all disease and uh, all injury. And interestingly, or maybe not, to me interesting, that stress is a psychological construct. Events don't cause stress. What causes stress are the views you take of the event. So if you open it up and consider it from multiple perspectives, being mindful, um, then you're going to end up with alternatives that are less scary to you. And then the body relaxes, which helps the healing. Dr. Alan Langer, this has been such a, I could talk to you for hours on this subject. Love to have you back on the show. I'd love to Where can that. people get the mindful body thinking our way to chronic health? They can go to Random House. They can go to Amazon, wherever books are sold. Can I add one other point? 
Absolutely. I started the book as a memoir, and then it became what it is, similar to my mindfulness book. That means it has a lot of personal stories, and I think it makes it a a fun read. You can see about my having been secretly married when I was very young, uh, my uh, interaction with Hell's Angels, and so on, to help make the points that I want to make about all of the science. Beautiful. Um, I want to encourage all our uh, quick reading students to get your copy of The Mindful Body. It will transform your your attitudes, assumptions you have about aging, about your memory, about yourself, and open up a whole uh, new world of possibilities. Dr. Langer, thank you so much. To everyone who's listening, make sure you subscribe, leave a review, uh, wherever platform you're enjoying it, maybe even take a screenshot and share it uh, with with a link to the show. Our goal is to build better, brighter brains, uh, no brain left behind. And thank you to our guest, Dr. Langer, for for being on our show. We, We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much, Jen.